0: Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now, here's the show Stop-cuff city!
1: Stop-cuff city! Stop-cuff city!
0: Stop-cuff Protests against a police training facility outside Atlanta grow louder after the death of an activist. Monday, January 23rd, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, we'll check in on the Asian American community in Monterey Park, California, after a shooter killed at least 10 people at a Lunar New Year celebration. And we hear from a scientist fired from her government job for attending a climate protest. But first, Stop Cop City. That's the rallying cry we heard a moment ago from a group of protesters in Atlanta who call themselves forest defenders. For more than a year, they've been trying to stop the construction of a police training facility in a suburban forest. Some of them have even taken to living in the woods. And on Wednesday, the dispute turned deadly. A state trooper was shot during a raid on the protesters' encampment, and police killed a 26-year-old protester who went by the name Tortuguita. That sparked more protests in downtown Atlanta over the weekend. And Shemaine Cruz has been covering it all. She's criminal justice reporter with WABE in Atlanta. She spoke with Robin Young earlier today.
1: And I know this has been going on for a while for you and reporters like you who've been following this and people in that area, but many people are hearing about this for the first time. This proposed building is being called by these protesters cop city that forest was originally part of the city's plan to fight climate change by protecting the tree canopy turning it into a park and this is an area that's predominantly black so give us both sides now why does the city say they need the facility and what are the protesters saying
2: well atlanta mayor andre dickens uh, who won office in 2021 is a supporter of the public safety complex and he has pledged to reduce violent crimes. So they're planning to build this facility on about 85 acres just south of Atlanta. And as you said, it used to be a park. So protesters are organized around environmental protection as well as just concerned with overall police violence. They say that having more police presence in this area lead to more violence.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and there has been violence in the protests before the one we're talking about. In May 2022, demonstrators uh, were alleged to have thrown a Molotov cocktail at police. People were arrested. Then there was another clash in December. So this has been going on for a bit.
2: It has. And actually, since December... About 19 people, including six who were arrested this past weekend, have been charged with domestic terrorism.
1: Yeah. And what do we know about the death of this 26-year-old protester?
2: Authorities say that they went into the forest last week to clear out uh, the area. Camp People have been setting up campsites there for months now, and they do this regularly where they go in and clear out the site. Um, And they say that Manuel Tehran shot at a state trooper during that raid and officers fired
1: back. Well, protesters, of course, say the police narrative is false. But without, you know, body cams, is there any other evidence as to what happened?
2: The Georgia Bureau of Investigation released a photograph over the weekend that they say Manuel Tehran had in their possession at the time of the incident, but they really haven't released any other details. So we don't know who this gun is registered to or if it really was in Manuel Teron's possession when the shooting
1: happened. Well, and uh, there was a fatality. Um, and now there were these protests over the weekend. You were there. What did you see? The
2: protest started out peaceful. It started in downtown Atlanta, but once they started marching, they started chanting things like Stop Cop City, and um, about 30 minutes into the protest, if that, they just started, a a small group started smashing windows of businesses. They started spray painting Stop Cop City on the side of these buildings, and a police car was set on fire, and several others were also damaged.
1: Mm. What are people in Atlanta, in the area, saying? I mean, again, this is new to a lot of people outside that area. Is everyone paying attention to it there? What's, how's it resonating?
2: Yeah, I spoke to uh, to a couple of protesters there, and they were just saying that they don't understand how um, in an area where the civil rights movement started, um, this is still happening, where there's police violence And protesters are really calling for three things. They want the city to cancel the project altogether. They're calling on authorities to release body cam footage of the incident, although the Georgia Bureau of Investigation says body cam footage isn't available because it doesn't exist and state troopers do not wear body cameras. Um, And protesters are also calling for an independent investigation to be conducted into the death of Manuel Tehran.
1: Well, meanwhile, the Atlanta Police Foundation, you tell us, say this proposed center is needed. They work in facilities that are substandard, borrowed facilities. Um, They can't recruit. Any sense, though, that uh, the the city might change its mind? Over the
2: weekend, um, officials released statements where they support, they continue to support the facility. And they say that this type of violence won't be tolerated. So I don't get the sense that the project is going to be cancelled.
1: WABE's Shemaine Cruz speaking with us about the protest against a proposed police training facility in Georgia where a park had once been planned and uh, protests that have turned deadly. Shemaine, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: After the break how Asian American communities in Southern California are processing the mass shooting Saturday at a Lunar New Year celebration in Monterey Park. Stick around. joyful Lunar New Year is off to a somber start after a gunman killed at least 10 people and injured at least 10 others during a celebration at the Star Ballroom Dance Studio in Monterey Park, California. Investigators say the motive is unclear and that the gunman shot and killed himself yesterday. Some organizers nearby are canceling their Lunar New Year events or adding security. Deepa Fernandez spoke earlier today with KPCC's Josie Huang about the impact the attack is having in Southern California.
3: What else do we know about what
4: happened? Well, this morning we are starting to learn who some of the victims are. Uh, In L.A., the county coroner's office has identified two of the ten people who were killed. One of them um, is named Mi. Uh, Nan, who was 65, and Lillian Lee, who was 63. They're waiting to release the names of the eight other people after they notify their families. And Deepa, you may notice those ages, 65 and 63. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's understood that um, all the victims were 50, ages 50 and up. The ballroom dance studio where this all happened attracts a lot of older uh, Asian immigrants And I imagine uh, many of those were the folks who were, uh, um, you know, in in the ballroom dance studio when the
3: gunmen opened fire. It it just must be absolutely devastating for the community. You've been out there, Josie, in Monterey Park, which is a predominantly Asian-American city in Los Angeles County. How are they processing the Lunar New Year being marred by such a tragedy? I think shock and fear were
4: the initial reactions that people I talked to. and things as you were pointing out, feel very heavy because of the timing of the attack on the evil lunar new year, and that's. Um, when people were celebrating downtown in Monterey Park the night of the shooting, actually not far from the ballroom where the shooter attacked, maybe just blocks away. And uh, as you were saying, Lunar New Year is a big deal in Asia, of course, but it's also really big amongst the Asian-American diaspora, especially in a place like Monterey Park, which is two-thirds Asian, and the majority of that population is made up of immigrants. And um, one person I talked to uh, was a Chinese uh, immigrant named Hong Liu, and she had come downtown to Monterey Park early Sunday morning to go grocery shopping. I met her as she was seeing all the police vehicles and news crews swarming an area that's really usually a quiet place in the morning on a, on a Sunday, and this is what she told me. So to paraphrase, she said she didn't know that something as serious a man, as a manhunt was going on, and now that she knew, uh, she was going to go home right away because it felt so scary to her.
3: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I just can only imagine what the community is feeling. I wonder though, um, you know, what else you're hearing in light of all of this about what will happen in neighbouring communities because Los Angeles County has a lot of Asian American residents. That's right. Monterey
4: Park does have one of the biggest Lunar New Year festivals in California, actually in the uh, country, right, because of the large Asian American population here. There's a lot of uh, celebrations, but there are some other big ones coming up in neighboring Alhambra and in LA's Chinatown. And as of now, neither has been canceled. I think the story might have been very different, though, had a suspect not been identified.
3: Mm, You know, I I wonder if you can, Josie, just tell us, you know, how you're feeling. You're the mother of Young Asian American children, you were probably gearing up to celebrate the holiday too, and you were dispatched to cover this story early. I imagine this is hitting home pretty close for you as well.
4: Yeah, I, you know, I actually was just in LA's Chinatown a couple of days ago getting my daughter, my seven year old daughter Ramona, a new dress for Lunar New Year because she's growing so fast and I couldn't squeeze her into last year's dress. And mm. I'll tell you, when I first heard about the morning uh, shooting early uh, Sunday morning, um, and, and that how it happened on Lunar New Year, New Year Eve, I, I, my reaction was that I teared up because I didn't know what I was going to tell my kids who are getting so excited about celebrating. And I've just been reporting, um, you know, nonstop since the shooting. So I haven't really had a chance to discuss with them what happened and I'm, I'm still processing what I will tell them and, and how much to tell them at this point.
3: Mm. Well, I'm sure this is also rippling back throughout Asia as well. So many close ties from Southern California back to the continent. Josie Huang reports on Asian American communities for KPCC. Josie, thank you and take care. Thank you, Deepa.
0: Coming up. A government scientist who was fired after attending a climate protest tells Robin she's doubling down on her activism. That's after the break.
1: Earth scientist Rose Abramoff had a coveted job, but she was fired from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee earlier this month after the lab said she violated their policies regarding speaking in public about climate change. Her dismissal came shortly after she unfurled a banner of protest at the American Geophysical Union meeting in December. And now in a New York Times op-ed, Abramoff is speaking out again about why she thinks the lab's policy needs to be changed. Rose Abramoff joins us now. Welcome. Thank you, Robin. You know, there's some irony here, which is I don't think many of us would have even known about the meeting of the American Geophysical Union Conference unless, you know, you had written that op-ed and we heard about you unfurling that banner. What did it say? The banner said, out of the lab and into the streets. And what brought you to that? So the American Geophysical Union is
5: the largest gathering of Earth scientists in the United States for certain, but possibly also the world. And all kinds of climate change research is presented there. And yet the great majority of this research is just exchanged among ourselves in peer-reviewed articles, or some of it filters its way to policymakers in assessment reports, a bit through the media, but the severity and the urgency of the climate crisis, that message isn't really making it out there, at least not to the extent that we think it needs to be. And so that was part of what motivated us to urge our fellow scientists to speak up.
1: Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, you've done this before. You've chained yourself to a chain link fence at one point. What, what other climate activism have you done? During
5: 2022, last year, I was arrested three times in different acts of nonviolent civil disobedience, so I chained myself to the White House gate. I also um, sat in a road, and I blockaded an entrance of a private jet terminal in uh, North Carolina because we're uh, aware of the fact that wealthy, high-emitting countries are responsible for the great majority of fossil fuel emissions.
1: Well, we know that Oak Ridge at that time, you know, people that you worked with or for, cautioned you not to talk to the public or the media about where you worked. You didn't do that, right? What was different this time, do you think? I think this time the main issue was the fact that I unfurled this banner and
5: gave this call to action at an earth science conference where I also was presenting my research for the laboratory. So so the research that I presented earlier on in the conference about the effects of climate and land use change on carbon cycling in, in various ecosystems was work that I was doing as part of the laboratory. Okay.
1: And by the way, we reached out to Oak Ridge and they say we don't comment on specific personnel matters, but we respect the right of all employees to pursue their personal interests outside of work. However, those actions must be consistent with company policies, maintain public confidence in our science as an organization, and avoid improper use of taxpayer resources. Your thoughts on what Oak Ridge is saying and doing?
5: Yeah, I think the comments that Oak Ridge has made have brought up some really interesting questions, such as, you know, what is the role and the mandate of Earth scientists during this climate crisis? Historically, scientists have been asked, not just by national laboratories, but by basically all academic institutions, not to make comments on the policy implications of our research. And I think that we're getting to a point where following the rules and not commenting on policy hasn't gotten us very far it hasn't resulted in the emissions reductions that we need to ensure a habitable planet for future generations and Furthermore, I'm not sure that this policy neutrality really protects us, protects people, protects science itself, so much as it protects institutions from their funders. The way that we do science now is often by separating ourselves from our objects of study, putting ourselves in this figurative ivory tower. And it's from this position of dispassion that we're supposed to be able to do our best thinking. But I think that by creating this kind of artificial separation, the research questions that we ask are less relevant to the vulnerable communities and ecosystems that we study, and we really um, forget what's important, and we forget to fight for the habitability of our planet. And so I, I take issue with this general concept of policy neutrality above all things.
1: Well, it reminds me of when the media, up until far more recently than maybe it should have, felt it had to have both sides on the climate change story when, in fact, we know that there is one scientific side at least. And you're part of a group called Scientist Rebellion. I want to hear more about that. And we're also reminded that in March 2022, when the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN body that assesses climate research, when that came out and concluded that the global warming is outpacing any ability to cope, there was a scientist at that time from New Zealand Bruce Glavovich, who wrote a letter calling on all Earth scientists and environmental scientists to do a mass walkout. What's the level of frustration among the scientists that you work with or who are joining things like the Scientist Rebellion? Yeah, I think the
5: existence of Scientist Rebellion and related groups like Scientists for Extinction Rebellion is a testament to this desperation that we in the earth science and the scientific community more broadly are starting to feel. I think one of the reasons why this mass walkout didn't gain as much traction is because it asks us to stop doing our research, which many of us really enjoy doing and think is very important. Scientist Rebellion takes a slightly more targeted approach um, where we do nonviolent civil disobedience around specific policy demands that we think are the kind of obvious policy implications of our research. So for example, demanding an end to fossil fuel extraction and subsidies, asking for a cancellation of Global South debt to facilitate a green transition, banning private jets and and calling for more progressive taxes on high emissions activities like frequent flying.
1: Well, but the call for a mass walkout, I think, and he's actually not going to serve on that review board anymore because he doesn't feel it does any good. The report comes out, I think the title of the piece that I read is, is anyone listening? You know, scientists concerned, is anyone listening? Mm-hmm. How does that feel? And, and what are you seeing? I know you've been on permafrost, you've been in, as you wrote, uh, in rotting forests. What are you mm-hmm. seeing that that you wish you could scream from the mountaintop.
5: Yeah, I'm seeing the firsthand and through data, the destruction of our of our vulnerable ecosystems and not only their destruction, but also their ability to support life. You know, right now we've already warmed our climate by 1.2 degrees Celsius. And most of us expect that we'll breach 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is the warming goal of the Paris Agreement. Sometime in the next decade, and this means that tipping points like the collapse of the Greenland ice sheet, the West Antarctic ice sheet, abrupt uh, melting of the permafrost in high latitude regions becomes likely—not just possible. It's already some of these tipping points are already possible, um, and then more of them come into play as we go past this number, which is what we're what our policies are pointing us towards. And so we really, we're, we're a bit at the end of our rope, you know, mm-hmm. we've been shouting from the rooftops politely through reports and articles, and now we're starting to shout it with our bodies and our freedom.
1: Yeah. When you see things like recent reports at Exxon, for instance, we knew that Exxon knew somewhat of the impact of uh, emissions decades ago, and the most mm-hmm. recent reporting is how much they knew, uh, which is astonishing when you see something like that, how I mean, how do you do your work? Yeah, I mean,
5: we've had mounting lines of evidence showing that Exxon knew all the way at least since the 70s and probably earlier than that. This most recent report you're referencing from the journal Science showing that they were making more accurate climate predictions than the scientific community at that time. Um, so they really knew specifically how much the climate would warm and what its effects would be. And since then, have really, you know, throughout the last decades, have persistently tried to misinform the public,
1: well, and also consistently, we we know, paid off lawmakers I mean, in the form of funding and the donations, absolutely. Yeah. Well, why do you think? You say many earth scientists face the same reality, which is scientific institutions don't support and often restrain them from speaking out about climate change. Why do you think that is?
5: Well, the great majority of academic institutions, but especially national laboratories, are funded by governments. So they often take great pains to align their mission with that of their funders. Uh, Although, I should say, I think that we actually have incredible potential to influence policy in the opposite direction if we were brave enough to try. You know, um, national laboratories actually do um, have lobbyists that lobby the government, typically what they lobby for is sufficient government funding for research. But there's no rule against us lobbying the government for an end to fossil fuel extraction and subsidies, you know, for any of these um, kind of policy campaigns, a more aggressive expansion of public transportation infrastructure. These are things that we could could lobby for if we wanted to. Well, seems like you might be good at it. Do you want your job back? Oh, that's a complicated question. I really enjoyed working at the Climate Change Science Institute at Oak Ridge National Lab. My colleagues are fantastic. And there's really fantastic research going on there. But the atmosphere under which all of that work takes place is is one in which we are really high, heavily encouraged and, and compelled, in my case, to um, remain policy neutral in our speech. And I think that that is an impediment to really implementing a clean transition to its fullest extent. And I'll just tell a little story about the history of Oak Ridge. Mm -hmm. So Oak Ridge National Laboratory was founded during World War II. And the city of Oak Ridge, the national laboratory associated with it, and functioning atomic weapons were built essentially from scratch between the years 1942 to 1944. Imagine what we could do in less than three years if we applied that same energy to the climate crisis.
1: Rose Abramoff, an earth scientist who was dismissed from Oak Ridge National Laboratory for her climate activism. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robin.
0: This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. There's always more to read and listen to at hereandnow.org, including the latest on President Biden's incoming chief of staff, and the ongoing investigation into classified documents found at the president's home. And Jill Schlesinger has some personal finance advice from her new book, The Great Money Reset.
1: Not every single one of your dollars that you have invested or saved has to be maximized. There are certain uses for having boring old investments that may not be yielding that much, but that can get you through a difficult time or get you through a great time where you are resetting.
0: Hear all Jill's tips on investing, on changing jobs, on negotiating for a raise at hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Ashley Locke, Gabrielle Healy, and Sam Rapelson. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.